Behavior Grooves podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. This episode is sponsored by The Lantern Group and Behavior Alchemy, two companies that provide insights into the application of behavioral sciences. When they are not teaching the world about BS, what? that's behavioral science shorthand. Oh, thank you. They're out helping pharmaceutical firms enhance their incentive compensation or persuading farmers to adopt more sustainable farming methods. Check them out on the web at www.lanterngroup.com or www.behavioralchemy.com. That's behavior alchemy, not behavioral alchemy. Good point. Thank you. In this episode, we spoke with Mike Ahern, a professor and researcher at the University of Houston who's been rebuilding his house since Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Oh, ouch. He's finally moving in, and we were really glad to have some time with him. Mike is an expert in sales incentives, so we talked about the behavioral issues that come to light with, well, mostly bad incentive design. Yes, yes, we did. Um, Mike's work with Tom Steenburn at the University of Virginia's Darden School has introduced a new way of thinking about salespeople. They use the term stars, core, and laggards to describe salespeople on their performance journey. They believe that the emphasis on stars and laggards is overshadowing the core performers like us. Those that middle sixty percent, like us, yeah, that okay. middle sixty, middle sixty, got it. <laughs> In addition, we talked with Mike about the Baseball Hall of Fame, General Colin Powell, and automobile sales. Yeah, he's a baseball. He used to be a baseball player. He did. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, you can hear Mike's passion for the topic in his voice as we geeked out on specific ways to avoid the big mistakes that companies make when they design sales incentives. And of course, we talked about music. I was pleased to hear that Mike is a big Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. With a little luck, mm-hmm. re- recorded by Sir Paul McCartney and Wings, uh, ranks as one of his favorite tunes, and it fits his thesis perfectly. Sometimes you just get lucky. <laughs> and we got lucky with this interview. <laughs> so whether you're commuting to work, working out, or out for a walk, we hope you enjoy this Behavioral Grooves interview. And if you like what we're up to, please check out our new Behavioral Grooves website, at www.behavioralgrooves.com. That's one word, Behavioral Grooves. We've launched a site to help keep you advised on our latest work and to get your feedback. Yeah. And if you like what we're doing, please write a review at your favorite podcast service or give us five stars. Yeah, four if you have to. But I, I, Five is good. Five though. is good. Five yeah. is good. So right now, please sit back, uh, drink your drink, and enjoy a discussion with Michael Ahern. Michael Ahern, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Thanks. Look, looking forward to talking to you guys today. Yeah, yeah, we've been uh, we've been looking forward to this as 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 well. Um, we're going to start with a little bit of a speed round here, and uh, so uh, Kurt, you want to kick off the speed round? Yeah. So, Michael, stars, cores, yeah. or laggards? Where should companies put their most money? I would say that the, the cores are are sort of the biggest neglected group, and uh, most of most of the research I, uh, I've done indicates that managers are spending way too much time on their stars and their laggards, and uh, and they're not investing in their cores, which is you know and that, and I think that's consistent with a lot of the research that's been done out there as well. Good. Yeah. Cities yeah. that get flooded by hurricanes, as if you might know something about that. Should people return and build or move away? 
Well, I chose to, uh, in Houston, uh, my, as you guys know, my house got flooded here and I, I just moved in about a month ago, which I'm, I'm excited about. And we, we chose to stick it out and stay in Houston, but, uh, uh, it's tough, man. It's, uh, it's, it's not happy. You know, the crazy thing is, is there's some homes here that the government insures that have been flooded seven times and, uh, and they just keep, the government just keeps paying for them to be rebuilt, which uh, is, is insane. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, ice cream flavor, vanilla, chocolate, Rocky Road, or other? Uh, other. Coconut. Oh. coconut. Yeah. Uh, that, I have not heard coconut. That's good. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whenever, whenever I'm in the Caribbean, I go for the coconut ice cream. Love it. <laughs> and you get a little rum with that, and then you have a, you know. A tropical that, that, that and the crazy thing is a couple of the islands throw mushrooms on top of it, which I have not. <laughs> oh, man. Anybody, but I would say that, that would be a good islands. one. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Michael, thank you again for, for, for coming on the, uh, Behavioral Grooves. We're excited to have you here. And I know one of the things that you have done a lot of research on is around incentives. And actually our first speed round question kind of talked a little bit about some of your findings on that. But could you just give us a quick overview of what you think uh, companies are getting wrong about incentives and what some of your research has been pointing to? Sure, yeah. Uh, so what are the, just to start out, uh, my, my friend Tom Steedberg from the University of Virginia and I really started to get passionate about really studying incentives uh, for sales forces more about 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And that's because, you know, when we started talking to companies about looking at incentive comp, we realized that, that just so few companies are really doing a good job of measuring and determining what, what types of programs are having an impact and what isn't. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just not happening out there. And, uh, in, in, you know, if you, you consider all the other investments that companies make, they're always measuring and monitoring, you know, through market research and other things, their investments and the impact. But in, uh, in incentive comp, we're just not doing that, even though we're spending, you know, billions of dollars uh, on incentive comp uh, for, uh, for programs. But uh, one of the biggest things that we see uh, is, is the, first, the first factor, probably the biggest issue in companies is just the, and it's a simple issue, which is understandability of the programs <laughs> that in, in close to up to 60%, depending on in business to business, up to 60% of salespeople uh, in companies cannot explain the details of how they're paid on incentive comp programs. They, they just don't understand their pay systems. Wow. And, uh, you know, you can imagine, you can imagine that if you don't understand how you're paid and what the incentive structure is, that it's impossible for it to work for you. So we could we could sit around planning incentive comp all day, but if it's so complicated and 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 poorly described to our sales force, then the the salespeople just aren't even going to be influenced by it. So we could have the we could have great elements to our program, but if salespeople don't understand it, it's just it's, it's worthless. What that's is it, probably one of the biggest things. What is it that's pointing? What what is it that is creating the confusion, uh, Mike? What, what what's the what's the big challenge here? 
Well, let me give you an example of this. Like uh, one of the companies that we got in with early is uh, is one of the biggest uh, insurance companies in the United States. And when we started working with them uh, in, in insurance and financial services, we started looking at their comp programs. And because their employees are under so many different contracts, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're in under a couple different contracts, that, that, that on top of the fact that there's all kinds of layered incentives uh, that are that are national, regional, local incentive programs that that aren't orchestrated. Plus, on top of that, uh, the fact that uh, that many of these programs they're afraid to make any changes in because they feel like a certain subset of the sales reps are going to get upset if you change certain programs. So, uh, so by the time you've layered all this local and and national programs under different contracts and different. Uh, in different setups that that a new sales rep is going to have no chance or sales managers have no chance of really explaining the programs adequately or the sales reps even understanding all the programs that are out there. So, so Mike, that sounds like there's a complexity issue in the structure of the incentives more so than a lack of communication effort or am I misquoting you there? Well, that's, yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. So, in, in many companies, it's not just the fact that the program is complex. Now, that that's not unusual for a program to be complex, uh, okay. the, and and a lot of that could be because also finance gets involved in it, and they like mm-hmm. to add complexities into the program. But uh, but part of the the biggest issue too is the fact that uh, that we don't do any training or validation on the fact that our salespeople actually understand the program. So if I'm rolling out, let's say I've made some some changes to my incentive comp for this year, and I'm getting ready to roll it out uh, uh, for the, the 2019 calendar year. Um, yeah. uh, typically, I would just send some information out to everybody, roll out the program with a little bit of text behind the changes and stuff, maybe brief some managers on it. And then send it out, but but we we do nothing to verify the fact that our sales reps even understand how they're being paid. So one of the things that we tried with a couple companies is to put a little mini certification test that goes out. Mm. So we send out a uh, we would send out a brief survey that all the sales reps would have that they have to pass. It's like a mini quiz that they have to pass to be certified to be able to get paid on the new uh, comp plan. So they watch a little video that explains their comp plan. And then they take a quiz and they have to get a certain number right in order to be certified. And what we look at is on the first try, how many of them get it right? And if not a lot of them get it right on the first try, then we don't blame the sales force. We blame the design team uh, mm-hmm. for doing a really crappy job of setting up that program. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, because I mean, the sales reps, I mean, they're going to be motivated think about it. I'm a salesperson. There, there's nothing, there's very few things that are more important to me than understanding how I'm getting paid. So if I'm, if I'm watching, if I'm not paying attention to a video about how I'm getting paid this year and the details on it, there's something wrong with, uh, with, with you in the way you're delivering it, not me in the way I'm listening to it. You know, Michael, you know? I've had a lot of work with companies around communicating incentive plans and the, that component, that certification aspect always seems yeah. it the the hackle or their hairs on their back kind of standing up in in many of the organizations where that that's just not something that we do we can't feel right. like people aren't going to understand it do you, have you did you run into any of that in your research or did you find any of that kind of yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I did absolutely. Like a lot of companies resist measurement with their sales force. Uh, yeah. like serv- like, and what happens is there ends because what happens is the types of surveys that get implemented in the sales force oftentimes are product related surveys and stuff that market research has comes up, come up with or HR has come up with that generally many of these surveys, if you measure them on a scale of one to 10, are close to a one or two on worthless. You know, they, the sales reps don't, the sales reps don't want to, they really don't give a shit about these things. They don't yeah. want to fill them out. Uh, they don't, they, they could care less about the time they spend on them. So then when it comes time to roll something like this out, they're like, oh, we don't want to do another task for these salespeople and stuff. But you know what? You got to think about what tasks are important. What What's more important than the, than the, the, the millions of dollars that you're utilizing to spend, to pay your salespeople, you know? Uh, and, and why wouldn't we want to know that the salespeople understand how they're being paid, and, and what, and, and also make sure that our programs are effective? You know, so I, I, I blame that on the companies more than I do the salespeople. You know, yeah, agreed, agreed. You know, one mm-hmm. of the questions that uh, that we, we, Kurt and I, in in our work, oftentimes get is, uh, you know, what's the right number of sales incentive programs to be running at a time. And um, which yeah. which is always um, I- incredibly frustrating for me because they think that really they just want to max them out. Like if they can just get to if the magic number is seven, if they could just get to seven, they they'd feel comfortable. They could sleep at night, you know, knowing that mm-hmm. oh, they they haven't gone over some kind of magic number. But but let me let me put it to you this way, Mike. Let me let me just ask: When does it get to be? When does the number of programs just get to be overwhelming? Well, well, I I would say that, you know, one of the really important things about this is I would say that there's got to be an overarching strategy to your programs. They they can't be independent of one uh, one another. There has to be like a a, a global structure and strategy to your entire plan. So what often happens is that we've set up a plan and then we just start layering things on top of it. And, and, And that layering on top of it just causes confusion. In fact, sometimes Sometimes some of the elements of the plan are working against other elements of the plan, yeah. and uh, it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, so what I would say is it's 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 one is maybe having too many elements that makes it complex, but more often than not, what it is is that really have not thinking of it strategically or holistically, because what you do is you're afraid to change certain elements of a plan that have existed for years, so you layer other things on top of it that cause confusion. And, and that, that's what I see more often. Um, so one of the things that we like to think about is, is, is a couple of things. And, you know, you talked in the beginning about the stars court lagger element. We like to, we like to first think about, are there elements of your plan that, that, that really impact your stars, your cores, and your laggards? Like, do you have elements of the plan that are, that are benefiting each of those groups? Are they understandable? And then is your and then one of the biggest issues that we see out there too is that that that, uh, that potentialization and, and and effort allocation is not equalized. So there's a fairness yeah. issue out in the field that yeah. uh, that salespeople think that the potential of them meeting this contest objective or hitting this target or whatever isn't fair for them because their potentialization work hasn't been done properly. They that nobody's really analyzed properly what's the growth targets in my in my territory. Um, how saturated has it become because of my past efforts? Those kind of things. So some somebody might have a really prime territory and another one a poor one, 
So they almost give up on it uh, ahead of time. So those three elements, which is which is the uh, uh, the understandable, uh, the uh, the fairness, uh, and the uh, the targeted element to it. So, Michael, I want to come back to the the fairness and the targeting uh, component of that. Mm-hmm. But before we go, just for our listeners who may not know stars, cores, and laggards, can you give a quick overview of what each of those are? Although they seem relatively self-explanatory. Uh, help us understand what those are. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. So, um, so, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, about breaking up the organization of those three groups. And, and the, ch- the challenge is, is, is more on the details of the methods to be able to do so uh, because of the stability of these groups okay. uh, than on the fact that we're identifying them. So I'm going to get back at that in a second. So you have your stars. Generally speaking, we all know that we have our stars and our organizations that are our Really, are high potential, uh, high uh, high yield individuals that are out there hitting their numbers and passing their numbers all the time. Uh, they're they're oftentimes, uh, many times, prima donnas. Where not all of them, but many of them are difficult to manage because because they have high expectations from their management team. They have uh, uh, they they want to be the managers want to make sure they're happy all the time. But also, these individuals are really driven, passionate, and uh, and, and aggressive sellers. Um, if you go to the cores, these are individuals oftentimes that are are uh, are making their numbers or just barely not making, but right in that range of a little above the average, and, okay. and they tend to they they tend to be ignored, largely ignored by the sales organization. So the stars make up maybe fifteen to twenty percent. The cores make up maybe sixty to seventy percent of your sales organization. So these this is just the bulk of your organization that gets less attention less focused because they're plugging along about making your average numbers, av- average targets, things like this, and that they, they get less attention from individuals because they, they're not really rocking the boat or anything. And then you've got the laggards, and this is like a 15 to 20% of your organization that's uh, your poor performers. They, they oftentimes make issues with your customers that you have to resolve, uh, or they're not doing their duties that are required of them, or they're not making their targets. The managers are, are struggling trying to get them better, and and this isn't. I want to distinguish a laggard uh, in two ways. It's not necessarily a person who is just hired by the company that's learning. Uh, I don't think of them necessarily as the laggards. I, okay. I think of this as a stable, steady state. These are individuals that have had the opportunity to develop, but never really yielded anything beyond a laggard state. Uh, so they're they're. Performance tends to always be below average, and they tend to be doing things in a way that is ineffective despite interventions of the manager oftentimes. Mm. So uh, they, they, they oftentimes require more, uh, more uh, governance, more management time by the, by the manager, more scrutiny to make sure they're not screwing things up. So, uh, so the stars and the laggards tend to get a lot of attention. The cores get less attention. So it's like uh, maybe 15 to 20% stars. 60 to 70% cores, 15 to 20% laggards. And, and, and although I would say those numbers shift between organizations, that's about the typical rate. Okay. And uh, so, yeah. Well, I, so Mike, I, I think about these laggards. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember hearing one sales manager say, well, you know, we hire only A players, but then we have to fire the C players. 
And, and yeah. so there, there was always this question of, well, what happens in between the time that they're hired and the time that they're, they're hired as A players and the time that they're fired as C players? Uh, so do, tell me more about the laggards. I'm, I'm interested in, in what you think is, uh, is, it, is, is there a hiring profile issue with them? Or, uh, what, what, what do you think is, uh, is driving their, as you said, stable um, productivity? No, that's a that's a good question. So, so uh, obviously, when we hire people, we we want to hire people who have high potential, and uh, and I would say though that that most companies' hiring practices are are suboptimal. And, and what I mean by that is 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 if if we're a manager, and also current management of our 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 workforce. So, if I'm a manager, and let's say I have ten salespeople, I'm in business to business, I'm selling durable goods. You know, I'm out there in business to business sales, and I'm out there uh, working with my team. I've got ten people working for me. Then, then based on these expectations that we have here, we might have two laggards, two stars, and 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 maybe about uh, six uh, cores. Okay. So, uh, one of the things that I would spend my time in is spending a lot of time with these laggards. I, I might try to make them better or manage them or things like this. But, but one of the things I realize is that oftentimes they get stuck and they they just don't. They, they don't get better. And, uh, and, and because a lot, what happens with many managers is that even when they recognize this person is, we're not developing them or not building them, uh, they, they would typically not hold them accountable uh, and would rather have them there performing at a suboptimal level than try to replace them and get somebody new. So even though like one of the things you mentioned before is you, you might fire them and then have to get somebody new. But typically organizations, what they end up doing is, is they, they just keep these people around for a much longer time than, than needed because uh, as a manager, you know, if I have 10 territories and then I have to fire a person out of a territory, that person's been performing at about an 80% rate. I fire them. I've got like six months where they're performing at a 0%, right? And I've got to get somebody to cover that. I usually have to cover that territory. One of my other uh, sales reps have to cover it. It becomes really distracting for me. So one of the issues that I that we find is that uh, managers oftentimes just let people lag uh, without doing anything about it, not holding them accountable. Uh, the the sec the second thing we would say is that that hiring practices are really suboptimal, and uh, and and the reason we'd say that is that that. This is typically the case. I, I, I'm a manager. I, uh, HR sends me over eight people to, to interview. Uh, I interview those eight people for the job opportunity, and I don't see anybody that I'm particularly excited about. Okay, um, And then I say to myself, okay, should I just pass on all eight of these and go with another batch, uh, or should I hire? So usually what I find companies do is they do a pick of the litter strategy. Which is, you know, I'm looking for a puppy. I go out there. There's this, there's these eight puppies, and I say, you know, I, I my daughter here really wants a puppy. I don't see any of them we like, but you know what the hell? I'm out here. There's eight of them. I got to get the best one. I take it yeah. home with me. I, and then it becomes a behavior problem for me, or I don't like it. We're not happy with it. Um, and that's that's true with salespeople too. That managers oftentimes don't optimally choose. So we have the we have the the maintaining performance and failure to get rid of people and hold them accountable. We have the poor hiring standard, and the other one is the developmental issue, where many managers, rather than holding people accountable for, for their performance, 
take on the task of, of trying to fill in for them and correct problems for them. So they're spending their entire day trying to help them sell, uh, to, to fix customer problems, things like this, rather than trying to, trying to get rid of the person and churn them uh, and, and refill them in another position. And it so sounds like those are a few of the things that they find. Yeah, it sounds like that is also driven by this issue of, geez, I'm a manager. I've got a territory that this person is covering. If I if I let them mm-hmm. go, then my my numbers suffer. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and you know, and one of the things that we find in organizations, and this is, we just part we just published an article in uh, the Journal of Accounting Research. I don't usually do research on accounting, but uh, this became like a really interesting topic, which is how organizations, oftentimes the finance and accounting department, really value in our C-suite, value short-term performance impact. So our sales force, it's all about what numbers we're hitting this quarter. And I'm a sales manager. Man, I am worried about nailing my numbers this quarter. And I know if I get rid of this salesperson, it's going to be really hard for me to hit numbers this quarter. But it might be in the long run better for me. So I'd rather suffer through and have this person out there for a while than miss my numbers at this time period. Wow. You know, so so it's, it's, it's an organizational pace setting kind of thing, an organizational strategy that often trickles down into the mindset of the sales manager as well in the company. Yeah. And so, so Michael, I want to go back then. You had talked also about this fairness and, and targeting and goals. And so I think that comes into yep. play as you're talking about that quarterly number that we have to fit and how how those targets come into that account. Can you expand upon some of some of what you were thinking about there and, and some of the fairness components as well? And how does that impact overall motivation uh, across the board? Yeah, so let me first uh, expand a little bit on this on this on this uh, hitting the numbers mindset kind of thing within companies, the short term versus long term focus mindset. So one of the things that we did is we studied, we got data from people who ran sales operations and key account management programs okay. uh, across over a thousand companies globally, uh, you know, Asia, Europe, U.S., everywhere, South America, globally. And uh, one of the things that we looked at is we, we had them fill out information for us about their comp plans and incentive plans. We also had them fill out information about the company's focus on, on, on quarterly versus annual numbers versus uh, long-term focus and short-term focus. And one of the things that we had them also go through is a battery of behaviors that we do that, that companies do called earnings management behaviors. And that okay. are... Those are behaviors that a company would do to try to manage their quarterly earnings uh, or short-term earning targets. And we know that companies do this a lot because Wall Street really values the fact that you hit your earnings targets each period. And the management of the organization really wants you to hit those numbers uh, each period. So so we know that a lot of times that that companies, what they do is they, they, they actually work their books in a way. Legally, you know, through legal methods, they work their books to try to make their numbers look as good as possible. Okay, uh, bringing, 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 bringing forth business and stuff. But they also do things called real earnings management, where they actually modify the business to try to make those numbers as good as they can. So one of the things that they'll often do is they'll, uh, for example, they'll do cost control. So you guys, I'm sure, have been part of organizations or worked with organizations that do cost control things. So at the end of the year. 
what do you do? You cut travel. Okay, you can't travel these last six months, six weeks of the year. We'll reduce travel because we want to cut costs. We don't ship as much of our product in these last few weeks of the year uh, because we want to we want to cut costs. We want to make sure we we cut everything we can cost wise uh, to make sure our costs go down at that period. Also, we pull business forward. So we run promotions at the end of a quarter that say, hey, customer, if you want to buy from us right now, we'll give you a 10% or 20% discount to try to pull future business into this quarter. So we know that those behaviors are really short-sighted, right? Because um, not shipping product, it, it upsets customers, right? Uh, yeah. Not doing travel, it doesn't get our sales reps out into the best customers to make sales calls. Uh, not, uh, you know, uh, all of these things are short, short-sighted behaviors, but companies do them all the time. So we looked at the extent to which they do these kinds of behaviors, and they were prevalent everywhere. You know, this was this was true across organizations. Um, and what we found is the organizations that did less of these types of behaviors, particularly among their most important customers, were much more successful. And, mm-hmm. and it allowed sales and it allowed sales managers too, uh, to 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 be able to. So so if you're gonna do these types of earnings management behaviors. You want to do them with your small transactional business and not your big strategic important business, because then what happens is is that you don't make your your long term performance objectives go down, your long term performance outcomes go down, and your sales force gets in a pattern of behavior that's da- dangerous. So, so if you, for example, are cutting travel and cutting promotions and cutting incentives or capping incentives at the end of the year. What happens is your salespeople start stop putting forth as much effort at the end of the calendar year. And as we all know, the end of the calendar year is the biggest end of the year is the biggest time for customers to buy. Right? Yeah. They're trying to get their their, their sales goods are going to get out there. They're trying to pull budget in from the customers that remain. So it's a it's a big issue. So um so the organizations themselves are often a, a cause of this, and as a result, managers manage to this. Um, and and many of our budgets are created around this. In fact, uh, if you look at um, if you look at budget the budgetary uh, forecasting, yep. so if you look at the target the targets that companies are are trying to hit all the time. So companies, we did a little bit of analysis uh, based on uh, uh, on the numbers that companies set for their growth numbers that they're trying to set. So the typical company, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to pull this up a second now for the growth numbers, but Approximately, I'm going to get, I'm going to get to it here in a second. But approximately 60% of companies that are out there fail to make their targeted growth numbers that they that they set for themselves. Wow, and 60%. a lot of it is because uh, yeah, six yeah, zero, six zero percent. Yeah, and uh, I'll, in fact, I'll get you, I'll get you the the exact data on it. But it's uh, it's actually quite amazing to see how many companies are actually not hitting their growth numbers. Um, and, and a lot of it is is that companies are pressing for this uh, this organic growth within the organizations, the sale of new products, the sale of services, uh, the, the growth of their markets. And what we're seeing is they're aggressively pushing for that. And again, we know that there's only two ways that you can grow organically. One is through the uh, uh, through the gain in market share by taking business from your competitors, or two from selling new products to the market. And we we're actually seeing that most companies are quite poor at both activities, that they're having a lot of trouble gaining share because markets are becoming more competitive with global entry into the marketplace and, and uh, 
and a lot more competition happening out there. But also at the same time, they're having trouble selling these new products. And, and as a result, they're just not making their numbers. So companies are setting these, these, you know, these arbitrary growth numbers that are very aggressive and that, that most salespeople aren't and most companies aren't meeting these numbers. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So the work that, that Tim and I do sometimes, we're working with these salespeople and the biggest complaint that we get by far, and this is across the board in any industry that, that I've worked in at least, is that my sales quota or sales target is unachievable? That the that it's yep. being pushed down. That 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 allocation of goal is being pushed down on me, and they don't understand the dynamics of my territory. And thus, the the goal that I have is uh, way out out of line and unachievable. And thus, you know what we see is that that motivation that you talked about, you know, at the end of the quarter and when they're doing these other things. But that also comes into play when a rep gets a, a a goal that they see or they perceive as being so out of reach that I can't even get to it. So, so doing the potentialization. So one of the activities uh, that we often see is that companies are really bad at determining uh, territory potential or territory potentialization numbers. Yep. Like what, what is the potential by territory? Uh, um, how do I reallocate territories to be able to make potential equal across territories? Or yep. even do I want to do that? That's, a, that's another question. Uh, that's another question that gets debated also, which, which, which is an interesting question, which is, uh, is assuming that I have uh, uh, different territories across my company uh, and that uh, those territories have different potentials, do I really want to uh, to make them equal, those potentials equal across individuals? Or would I rather have certain people with better potential than others? And that, that tends to be that tends to be hotly debated. Yeah. But, and that gets, um, but gener- generally speaking, companies are terrible at determining the potential of their dis- of their sales territories. Yeah. And so with that, what do you see that lending itself into? If they're terrible at it, if they're having this dialogue whether or not even if we want them to be uh, the potential to be equal across the board what does that mean for the company and for the salespeople in, in particular and do you, do you see anything from that yeah well, well it's demotivating for salespeople for sure if you know that if you have information in your mind that indicates that the growth targets that are being set for your district or your territory as a manager, your district, a salesperson your, for your territory are, are out of line with reality uh, and they exceed what you think you could ever uh, objectively achieve, then I'm not going to push for that. It's not, yeah. a, you know, if our targets, as we know uh, from a behavioral perspective, if I set a goal that's out of reach or I believe mentally is out of reach for me, then I'm, I'm not going to drive to achieve that goal. Yeah. And so, so by doing that, we're just already setting ourselves up for failure with our sales organization. We yeah. have to make achievable and, and object, uh, objectively, um, uh, objectively set goals that we know that we can justify to our people. So yeah. if they don't, if our, our sales force, you know, I worked in incentive comp uh, for the for the pharma industry before I actually I worked for uh, I worked in market research and incentives for Eli Lilly. Before okay. I, in the farm industry, before I went back to go get my finish my PhD, 
And when I was working there, one of the things that we would often do is to, to, to try to figure out what's the potential for each territory. Uh, and then we'd have to justify the potential to the sales managers and, yeah. and explain to them that oftentimes they come back to us. And, you know, and, and one of the things I see in, in many sales organizations, and this is particularly true, not only across small and mid-sized, but large ones, is, is that there's, there's just not the level of sophistication that's put behind things to really understand the potential that the territories have at them. You know, one of the things that we know now is there's a tremendous amount of data available that we can put together uh, to be able to come up with good market potential exercises or potentialization exercises. And yeah. that I, when I meet with many companies I meet with just aren't doing an adequate job of this. They're not pulling all their data resources together and analyzing their, their data to be able to understand really what is the potential. Because it's a massive exercise to be able to do this, to pull all these sources together uh, and, and to get these types of, you know, these types of uh, analyses to be able to be effective. Yeah. Um, and a lot of companies just don't want to do it, you know? How much yeah. are they doing? How much are they pulling in uh, sort of non-objective uh, data sources? What about the subjective data sources, like what the sales manager or the sales rep says or believes or can can influence can can speak to a specific territory? How much is that included, or how much should it be included, Mike? So, so you know, what, one of the most common things that we see now out there is is that, uh, and this, and, and I would say that this is a mistake. Uh, uh, the, the biggest mistake is for a company to say, okay, we're going to hit a 6% growth this year. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to equally distribute that among all my sales districts and all yeah. my sales store and territories out there. Everyone's got a 6% increase. Right? Yeah. And we, yeah. know, we, know that's, we know that's ridiculous because there's going to be certain growth in certain segments and not in others or certain regions and not in others, all kinds of things like this. You know, there's higher potential in certain areas. So by doing that, we already know straight out of the gate that that's going to be a mistake uh, and that it's going to be demotivating for people. Yeah. Uh, and so then the, then the next step that they usually do to try to, to fix this is a negotiation process then begins with the district manager uh, and the, the, the VP of sales and or the finance or accounting departments or areas uh, or incentive comp that's, that's saying, uh, how should we, you know, reallocate this? What, but you got to make your six percent at your district. But how are we going to redo this a little bit? You know, um, or if you're uh, with the regional VP, uh, if you're going to have a six percent, well, how are you going to allocate it across your regional people? And then, so they get some input on district managers and maybe some input on salespeople who give resistance. But that's very typical. And the problem with that that we know. As we know, and there's a lot of research on this, is that we know that salespeople, uh, there, there's, two, there's two really interesting things about salespeople. Salespeople tend to be overconfident. Yep. So if you, ask them, if you ask them, what's the likelihood of you closing this piece of business? The, the likelihood is always, they always target that higher than, than uh, not always, but generally speaking, they target it much higher than, than the likelihood they really have of closing that business. Now, if you ask them what's the likelihood of closing that business, and that's tied to their incentive pay, that they may gain that number, okay? Because yeah. then they want then they then they want to sandbag and say, oh, maybe I won't make that business. But if you're generally asking them, they, somebody we know, sales rep goes into a meeting with a customer, and they meet with that customer. Generally speaking, they'll overestimate the likelihood that they'll hit a piece of business, and that's 
that that's generally psychologically true among salespeople because we know that salespeople are mentally resilient. They want to be positively framing on things because mm-hmm. they go through so much rejection that they want to keep psychologically positively framing. So if we're going to use that kind of data, which is the sales manager's insights from their salespeople about potential, generally speaking, uh, going into things, they'll overestimate. Now, when a number comes back to them, they'll then they'll say, then they'll gain that system a bit to be able to make sure their numbers are down. So they'll make it. So you have a little bit of a both sides going back and forth, but a lot less objectivity than you would really like out there in the sales force. So the more... The more you can supplement the behavioral input that the salespeople have with objective data to indicate what the size of the potential of market increases are, the, the way better you are in, uh, in setting your target. Yeah. So it's got to be a it's got to be backlight too. If you're if you're only using input, like if you're only arbitrarily setting a six percent target and then getting input, you're really going to be messed up. <laughs> it's it's going to come out badly. Yeah, and it happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael, I have so many so, I mean, on this, but I think one of the things that I want to get back to, uh, just to make sure that we we don't miss this, is we started talking about laggards and and some of the components around laggards. But you mentioned at the very beginning that core those core performers are really that largest percentage of your your sales force, and they're the ones that get ignored the most. So what can we do or what can managers or sales VPs or whoever is in charge of putting together incentives or, or working with the, the sales force, what can they do to really motivate those core performers? What are some of the tricks and things that you've learned? Sure. So, so, so that that's an area we studied quite a bit because we know that that First of all, we know that cores are largely ignored. So when when awards get put out, uh, when people win, uh, when you know top sales achievement numbers or Presidents Club or all these kinds of things, typically our our cores are ignored. They don't win awards. They don't win recognitions. They don't get a lot of achievements. Uh, they just plug along and they make our numbers and they they move forward. Yeah. And uh, and they're a very important part of our sales force. So we. We have to think of ways to A, affect their behaviors, to change their behaviors to make them more effective, and B, to get them that recognition necessary to make them winners uh, and make them feel good about their jobs. Because one of the things that we did is we did a study to look at when people fail to uh, fail to be recognized over and over and over again. If you so let's say that you uh, that you're trying to make a uh, you know achievement club, whether it be president's club or, or gold club or whatever what our company makes. Yeah. And you tried to make it. You're, you you you've almost made it, but you failed. You failed. You failed continuously over time. That we know that your engage employee engagement scores go down, 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 down each period after that, and the likelihood of you doing better with your performance and achieving better drops substantially each period because wow. you're just not being recognized and rewarded. Wow. You know, okay. um, that, that, you know, we started that based on, as, as you guys, we've talked about before as we, I started that uh, based on some of this research that we saw with, you know, with like Nobel laureates or with, uh, uh, with, with professional baseball players, not making the hall of fame or not winning an award. Uh, you know, the failure. So people we know from these studies that Cornell did a long time ago, which is, uh, which is, you know, if you fail to achieve status, 
uh, by failing and failing and failing over time with near misses, that that takes a major toll on. Uh, in those studies, like in professional baseball, failure to for a person who got nominated and continued to almost make it, almost make it, almost make it, but never made the Hall of Fame, we know that that, that, that had a substantial toll on them. In fact, it reduced their life expectancies. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, in fact, in fact, the research would indicate that, uh, that, that, you know, when, you know, if you're trying to make the baseball hall of fame, if you get over 75% of the vote of the, uh, writers association, you make the hall of fame and you have about a 10 year window to do this. You have exactly yep. a 10 year window. So, uh, so they keep nominating you. And usually that nomination number goes up, up, up until you finally make it. So they studied those people who make between 50 and 75%, but never quite make. Uh, mm-hmm. the Hall of Fame. So they never quite get that recognition. They're just sort of an average core player in baseball. And they look at them and they, they study it and they found out that, 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 that by failure to make that Hall of Fame uh, over that period had, a, depending on which study you look at, between a three and a five year impact in expectancy of life. Oh, uh, failure gosh. to make it. My gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, that, that's, that's incredible. So, yeah. Yeah, so it, it impacts their it impacted their life expectancy. If you so, if you want to look at salespeople, uh, we looked at the, does failure to uh, to make these numbers period after period, or failure to achieve status period after period, how does it affect them? Now, obviously, we didn't we we probably didn't look at life expectancy, which would have been really <laughs> interesting. But we looked at uh, we looked at their enge- employee engagement and satisfaction scores. You know, most companies have an employee engagement score that they do each year, and so we examined that and we saw that at ever every successive failure, their score drops, 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 and then it ultimately drops to a period where it's not recoverable. It it never recovers. Yeah. So they become they they become uh, you know really apathetic about the organization, not engaged, um, and just sort of out there just doing their jobs. So one of the things we wanted to study is how do we sort of make them win more often and and help these behaviors to get them better. And so uh, we went with a, a number of different companies. We in fact started in the automotive industry, and um, we looked at it. At, we looked at you know the, the question of outcome versus behavioral based controls. So an outcome control is when we pay a person for their outcomes. So right. we reward them for their outcomes. So you know you made a certain number of sales numbers, or you achieved the market share in your territory, and there that then you got this outcome. So in uh, or versus a behavioral control is. You did a certain behavior a certain number of times, and as a result, we reward you for that behavior. This is used in classrooms all the time. So teachers, for example, if we think about elementary school or high school, or even for me, college teachers, you got these students out there that they're just sort of average performers, and, uh, and they're, they're never the ones that are scoring the very highest on all the exams, you know, maxing them out. But you want to try to get them better. So you look at what are the behaviors that they do versus the behaviors of your star students, and you try to figure out what are some of the things that you could get these average students to do differently, that if they did it differently, they would become more like a star student. So we we started doing that in, in sales. and we, So we took, for example, the automotive industry, and we looked at these behaviors. And one of the things that we found is that in a typical retail automotive setting, at least in these luxury cars that we looked at, 
Okay. Um, we, we found that, an, uh, that a top star performer sells 20 plus cars in a month. And that these, these are people that are thought to be superstars. An average performer would sell, sell between, say, 12 to 14. Okay. And a low performer would sell below 10. Okay. Maybe eight, eight or so. And we wanted to look at how the company wanted to look at what is it that these average performers are doing differently than these stars. So we tracked all these behaviors that they do when they engage with customers, they prospect company, customers, everything they did. And we identified probably about five different areas that they did things substantially differently than the stars did. And so we, we developed not only a training program, but an incentive program to try to increase these number of behaviors that, that, that are done differently. One of those behaviors, I'll give you an example. One of those behaviors is, is uh, actually test driving cars. Okay. So it, you guys, I'm sure, have gone in to buy, a, buy cars before. And when you go in to buy them, an average sales rep, you go in to go buy the car. Let's say you call this, you know, you, you either go on one of these car car uh, websites and get referred, or you actually call up the, uh, the the dealership that you make some discussions with them. You say, yeah. I want to come in and see, let's say I want to come in and see, say, get yeah, buy an Audi, Audi A6. Okay. Yeah. I'm interested in buying an Audi A6. I show up to the dealership, an average sales rep meets me, and I say to them, the sales rep, I say I meet him, and I say, hey, I'd like to buy an Audi A6 today. Really interested. So what they'll do, an average one will do, is they'll come and sit you down at their desk, and they'll start talking to you about the Audi A6, and they'll actually write up the numbers with you as quickly as possible. They'll start getting to the negotiation of the sale as quickly as possible. A star, what they'll do is they'll say, hey, I know you love the Audi A6. That's great. Uh, let's go out and see it. Let's go test drive. Um, whereas the average person may just show you the car, uh, but they're not going to take you on a test drive unless you ask them to. The stars always took people on test drives. No. So they, even if the people, even if the person didn't really care about the test drive, they brought them on, them. and they wanted to walk them through the car. They wanted to make them feel part of buying that vehicle. Then they would sit them down afterwards and do the negotiation with them. And what we saw is by doing that, not only was the close rates higher, the likelihood of them buying that day higher, but the margins by which they bought on the car were higher. So the total buy, the total margins were higher. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so we wanted to see how do you get an average person to do that more? So what we said is if we had a, so let's say we had a promotion this month, we had a ton of Audi A6s. We were trying to get rid of them. We said, all right, whoever sells the most Audi A6 in this month is going to get a SPIP, win an award, you know? Well, we already know who's going to, who's going to sell the most Audi A6s. If I, did yeah. that, if I did that in my dealership today, I could tell you who was going to win that award. Now, if I said whoever does the most test drives on Audi A6s this month, then that's a little more ambiguous. I'm not sure who's going to win that award uh, because the average performers can do almost as many test drives. So they, they may not win all the time, but they may win sometimes on that. And not only will they win, they're going to change that behavior of starting to bring everybody on test drives. And as a result of that, what we saw on this is not only did the number of test drives increase among the average performers, but the performance increased among the average performers. They would go from, they actually increased the number of cars they sold by about two a month. Wow! Just simply by learning the fact that they are going to, uh, they they need to do this. They need to engage in this new behavior, 
And we did those across the, uh, depending on the company, we did it either anywhere between four and six behaviors we identified. And we would try to get the sales reps to engage in these differing behaviors that the stars did. And it made an important impact. It changed the behaviors of these average performers. So not only does it give them a chance to be recognized and win something for once, it also gives them the, uh, a reward for behaviors that we know change and increase performance. So, um, so we, wanna, we want to get these average performers to increase their effort. You know, we want to re-engage them. We want to get them to drive and, and, and be more effort, uh, higher effort indications in any period. You know, one of the, the quotes that I really like is by Colin Powell, who says, the healthiest competition occurs when average people win by putting above average effort. Uh. So um, it really gets at this, you know, how do we get this average performer to put this effort in to make themselves be a star? And how do we direct that effort in a way that's going to make them achieve? So, uh, Mike, so that's what we really tried to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a behavioral based incentive that you're tying into that. Mm-hmm. You also talked about outcome based. Is there a way to to work with the cores on an outcome base, or is that do you find that the behavioral one, if you can identify those behaviors that are driving the, you know, the the, the success of the stars, is that going to be something in there as well? Yeah, well, that's definitely a big part of the formula is to increase more behavior-based incentives to get them to be better and to win more. Okay. Uh, another thing to do is to get your, and we talked about making your targets achievable yep. uh, You know, earlier is, is one of the challenges. So one of the things that we did a little bit in, in, uh, in looking at our contests that we structure as companies to try to get, to try to get our, our cores to win more. Uh, and to drive more effort is we looked at, uh, at you know, companies that had, so if I'm going to run a, a contest this month, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll say, you know, if you hit this number of cars that you sell, that you win the contest and you get yep. X amount of dollars or you win this prize. So what we looked at is instead of having a single tier in our contest, we looked at two tier, three tier, multi-tier contests. And uh, one of the things that we found is, is that as you increase those number of tiers, and let me explain that a little more in a second. So, so instead of having one target that says, if you sell you know, 18 cars or more, you get this money. What we did is we took the same amount of money and we divided it up into, instead of just selling 18 cars, did you get one kicker when you sell, if a two-tier, you get one kicker when you sell 14 cars, the next kicker when you sell 18. And then a three-tier, which is, you get one when you sell 12, then 14, then 18. Okay. And so a multi, multi-tier multi contest. So by doing so, what we end up seeing is that the salesperson, the average salesperson hits that first number, and then they say, wow, you know, maybe I've already hit this, uh, uh, this first number. Maybe I can make the next number. Then they push themselves to make the next. Maybe I can make the next number. But if the numbers seem so unachievable that they're never going to make that one tier, they're just never going to try for it. And the, the contest itself becomes irrelevant. So what we actually saw is when usually a typical, uh, this we did this in a number of different studies in a financial service company, and we saw when they held a one-tier contest with the same payout as a two and a three, the one-tier increased performance at about 4% okay. on average. A two-tier a two doubled that to 8%. 
and a three-tier went up to 11% increase in performance across that period. Wow. So what it did, and the biggest lift it did is among those average performers, because they started to climb up and say, oh, I can make that next target. I can make that next one. And so they kept going up to try to achieve. So and what and it by, does is it pulls those people forward. And is that with the, with the same budget, uh, the, 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 the one tier, the two tier, or the three tier, or those incrementally larger budgets then as well? No, no, it's absolutely the same budget. So let's say that we had a hundred, a hundred dollars we were giving away per per incentive. Instead of a hundred for the one tier, what we do is we'd break it into three, and we'd have it progressively more as you get each one. But the total would be still be a hundred dollars. That's terrific because we often hear the question mm-hmm. about, well, you know, uh, the sales manager has a, a myth in their mind that if they just give away a monstrous trip to uh, some exotic location for one winner, that that will be the big driver. Uh, when what you're saying is that that's actually exclusive because there's a lot of people who are automatically taking themselves out of the competition that could be contributing if there were more tiers and more rewards. Yeah, so in that situation, what we typically happens is we get a lot of attention because it's a monstrous, interesting award. But then uh, many people then pay attention to the incentive, and so they're aware of it then. But then they recognize, do I even have a chance at winning this? And then the, the, the large number of, of cores that say, you know what, I'm not going to win it. It's going to be one of these stars that likely wins it. Then they're just going to be checked out of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's terrific. Uh, well, there are so many more questions that I think both Tim and I want to ask. We're going to have to have you come back, Mike, because this is just... No, no, um, I'd love to. This is, this is the stuff that we just geek out over and we get fascinated with and... And you have such a great uh, body of, of research that you've done and insight. So uh, we really appreciate that. And Tim, I, I don't know. Do you have any last questions? Well, I do. As a matter of fact, um, I have to. Uh, we, Mike, one, you know, one of the things that we like to talk about is music. You've grown up in what California, New Mexico, Virginia. You, you kind yep. of been all around the, the states here. And um, now you live in Houston. And I'm just wondering, what, uh, what is the kind of music that you find yourself listening to the most? What, what, is, it that, uh, what is it that gets you going in the, in the morning? What, is the, what are the tunes that you like to listen to to get you, you know, spirited? Well, so I've got a, I'd say I have a mix of things, but, uh, you know, I, I, I like uh, 70s and 80s music a lot, uh, time period when I grew up. Uh, you know, um, I do listen to a little bit of country since I moved to the uh, moved to the South. And uh, one of the uh, one of the I've always been a big Beatles fan and a big Paul McCartney fan. Probably oh, yeah. my, my favorite stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what mm-hmm. is it uh, specifically in, in Paul McCartney's library of great songs? Mm-hmm. What is it that stands out as a song that has meant the most to you over the years? Ah, that's a good one. Uh, the one song, one song that I really like a lot is uh, is I don't know if you, know, you guys know the song "With a Little Luck." Yep. Um, uh, that he sings. Yeah. So I I really like that song a lot. It's a and it's a little bit about uh, it's a little bit about uh, a, it's about a couple who in a in a combination of effort between them that they put between the two of them and uh, and the luck that lucky things that happen to them, lucky breaks they get over time that they capitalize on. It makes them happy and successful and things like that. Always, always duck that song a lot. 
Yeah, that was. Uh, I think that yeah. was with Wings, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I think you recorded that with the yeah. with the Wings group. Yeah, it's it's a great yeah. narrative, uh, and of course, McCartney was great at weaving great stories. Um, is I, I shouldn't say was. My gosh, he's still a great songwriter. Um, that's cool. Okay, much appreciated. Uh, we will we will return to music uh, more on our next on our next podcast uh, because we will great. absolutely have you back, Mike. This has really been a pleasure. Okay. Uh, um, any, uh, let me just say, ask you this, Mike, any, any closing thoughts? Is there, is there anything that you feel like, is there any tip that you'd like to give the listeners who might be sales managers and building, uh, building incentives? Is there, you know, one last little nugget that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share? Yeah, I guess, I guess the, I, I guess the big thing, the, the big takeaway that I'd like to have companies do is to, to, to do a lot more measurement. On, on the impact of their of their incentive programs, like I, one of the my biggest uh, my biggest uh, uh, things that annoys me about organizations is that that we spend so much money on sales incentives, yet we never really do any analysis to determine what's working and what's not. Um, you know, it, it, it's a gut feeling by mm-hmm. by by the groups. And uh, one of the things I'd like to really sort of have everyone think a little bit about is is what are you doing to measure the impact of your sales incentive programs? Are you piloting them? Are you, are you, doing, any, are you doing any analytics to measure the impact that they're having on performance? Uh, do you know what's working and what's not? And when you ask that to most companies, they're like, ah, we have a gut feeling, but we're really not sure. I, you know, if you think about other functional areas like advertising, they, they would never think in advertising, oh, I'm rolling out this million dollar campaign, but I'm not going to actually test market it. I'm not <laughs> going to see how it's working. I'm not going to measure the impact of this campaign. That that would never be the case. But in sales incentives, for some reason, that's okay. It's, and yeah. Even though we spend, you know, like seven times the amount that advertising does uh, on on sales incentives, we still don't do that, which which to me is a huge mistake. So yeah. I, I'd like to leave it at that is that companies do, need to do a lot, make a lot more effort in measuring the impact of their incentive programs and thinking about them scientifically. Yeah, I would, I would, I would echo that very much. And so to, to just get a pilot in on a sales incentive is a, a massive undertaking, much less doing a actual control group with a larger you know subset and trying to figure sure. out if but, you know, looking at different interventions to see of these three interventions, which one works best. That's uh, an effort of Herculean uh, effort, I think, sometimes. So, but. yeah, no, no, it absolutely it absolutely is. You know, it's, it's a battle with finance, human resources, legal, uh, the sales managers and salespeople themselves. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 it's, and it's because there's not no norm that's been set in the company that this is a normal thing to do. You know, in in advertising, it's thought of as a normal thing to do. Oh, we're going to pilot this. Oh, we're going to we're going to measure this. So we put a a a portion of our budget aside for measuring the impact of our programs. But in sales, we don't do anything like that, which I think is a huge mistake. So yeah, yeah, huge. All right, Michael Ahern, thanks very much for your time today. We really really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun, and we will be having you back soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavior groups interview, have a free flowing discussion on some of those topics, and we talk about whatever else comes into our little head.
is. Yes, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Oh, so Tim, uh, Tim, tell me, what did you think about Michael A. Heron's interview? What were some of the things that caught your attention? Number one for me was measurement. Measurement. Yeah. Wow. What do you mean measurement? Um, what What are we talking about here? Oh, what are we measuring? We're talking. This is almost like the the golden ring that I wish more companies would use uh, that it seems so rare. Uh, you know, we come from backgrounds where we've worked with lots of different clients and I have so rarely seen a company willing to test a sales incentives. Yes. And yet technology companies, they make beta tests all the time. We test them out. We try them. And I think the interesting analogy that Mike brought up was, look, you wouldn't spend $100 million on a marketing campaign without doing some pilots and some testing and some variety of different things. Yet consistently, we see large organizations spending $100 million, $200 million on their annual sales incentive plans with little or no measurement of the impact that those sales incentives have on actual performance. Just because they treat it like a beta test doesn't mean that it really is a beta test. I mean, you know... And a beta test every time. Like every, there's, there's, every single time. Yeah, exactly. every time it's a new beta test because right. you're not looking into the underlying components. You're not doing a pilot where you're saying, let's look at a control group versus uh, the testing group. Yeah. And, and coming from a behavioral science background, that just seems wrong. Uh, <laughs> completely wrong. <laughs> well, and part of it, it, you know, from my perspective is when you do some of these tests, what you you can not only look at the output. So you can not only say, all right, let's look at, at, at um, group A versus group B and see which group did better. You change the variables, the input variables on one and see if the output, the determinant variable changes, right? You can also look at this from the perspective of saying, Why? helping understand mm-hmm. the rationale behind why. So then, you know, your next beta experiment, right? Your next sales incentive, you have a little bit more knowledge as to why people are behaving the way that they're doing. And so you can actually do maybe another control group and test and look and see, take that knowledge that you had from the prior one and apply it there so that you're actually honing in more and more and more and making these sales incentives more impactful, more powerful than you did if you just left it up to, hey, this is what seems right. It seems good. It's the the gut feel or I know my reps and I, I don't want to take any of that experience or knowledge away, but combine it with good data and, and good analysis. What Mike talked about analysis, analyzing and piloting and testing. Just if we know we're going to do sales incentives this year, take part of the budget and figure out how to actually make those dollars go farther. Because you and I both know when we have been involved with companies who have tested we learn so much more. We can make those incentive dollars go so much farther than if they're just going with their gut. Well, and again, it comes into the insights from behavioral science show that as humans, we're not always the most rational beings. I know. That's a big surprise. And the fact of the matter is, is oftentimes the incentives that we put in place, those incentive programs that get put in place because, hey, 
I know my sales reps and they're going to just want more money, or I know my sales reps and this is the type, they want to be measured on X versus on Y, or they want to have this type of program put in place, may not actually be as true as we might think that would be. Yeah, it it might be true, but it it might not be true. And and oftentimes, at least in my experience, when we go out and you do some of that testing or you do even some qualitative research on, on some of the stuff, 80% of the, the time, the things that come back are things that you have definitely already made assumptions about and, and are right on target with those assumptions. But what about that other 20%? It's that 20%. And sometimes that 20% is just a 20%. Sometimes that 20% makes a significant difference. Yeah. So it's that 20 driving the 80% of, of outcomes. So how about you, Kurt? What uh, what came to light in uh, our discussion with Michael Ahern that, that really caught you off guard? So one of the things that I loved, because it ties right into all the work that I do, or a lot of the work that I do, was right at the very beginning when he was talking about the lack of people understanding their incentive plans. Oh, that yes. 60 plus percent of people don't fully understand their incentive plans. S- say that again. 60% of people, sales reps, don't fully understand their plan. And what does that lead to? So think about the implications. If I am a sales rep and I'm out there and I don't fully understand how I get paid and that pay is supposed to motivate me to do certain behaviors. Right. It's, if, it's an incentive. It's an incentive to get me to go above and beyond and to drive certain types of behaviors within the realm of whatever I am doing. If I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing or how my incentive plan is supposed to be driving those behaviors, I'm probably not doing what you want me to do. I'm probably not maximizing the impact that you want me to have. And I see that. So Mike talked about this from the research. I have seen it. What we typically see is 50 to 70%. So right in that 60%, it's it's around there, that once you get past that top level of understanding. So most incentive plans have a variety of different eligibility or rule components beyond just kind of that top layer. And so I think most people understand I'm getting paid on product A at 30% of my payout and 70% on product B. But then you get down into the next layer of, well, product B is measured at these three different ways, or product A has a kicker on it, or extra complexity extra complexity that goes in. That's where people start to lose it. And what I find is actually even more probably have a, a bigger impact is people don't always know that they don't understand. They don't understand it. Of course not. So they misinterpret it. And that can lead to exactly the opposite of what an organization is trying to drive. And I see that more than you would think, that people are saying, well, no, I get paid on component B by driving market share. And you're going, actually, it's market share growth, which may not seem big, but it's a, it's a vital difference. Or there is a component of, well, I, it's only 20% of my plan. Yeah, but that 20% adds to this kicker component that adds into this other element of it. Um, as somebody said today uh, in an interview I was doing with them, you know, my incentive plan is kind of like a bowling, you know, score, right? So if I get a if I get a spare in frame one, then I multiply frame, you know, two by, oh by X. But if I get a strike, I multiply by two X. And if I get two strikes in a row and all the different things, but I thought it was a really good analogy. 
analogy is that's how many incentive plans are designed. And if you don't understand how to score your bowling league, right, <laughs> you're not going to – it makes a difference. Well, I'm just going to raise my hand and say, I don't know how to score. <laughs> I'm really glad that the bowling lanes have automated scoring systems. Let me just say that. You didn't take that in grade school where you had oh. to do your X's and your dashes and you, you know. Yeah. No, right. no, it did right. not. That was that was not part of it. Uh, um, what, what about uh, what about the big mistakes? You know, I, I thought that this was really um important that Mike talked about the number of companies, the, the prevalence of this idea that they're just uh, making a top-down um, proclamation that every, all the territories need to grow by 6%. Horrible. It is awful, right? It, it, <laughs> and, then, and of course, that leads then to this negotiation problem where now, you know, territory one, well, they don't really have the opportunity to grow 6%. Maybe they could grow 3%, but that means territory two, well, we're going to have to have them grow by 9%. Oh, and that just sounds yeah, awful. And, and, and the reality is territory one and territory two are different. And yes, they should probably grow differently, but yes. you don't want them negotiating that because then you get into a component of fairness and this perception of lack of fairness because now I, I know that territory A is only getting 3% growth and I'm getting a 9% growth and that averages out to our 6%. But if I don't necessarily believe that my territory has a 9% growth rate and I'm just I'm giving, yeah, we're, I'm, we're giving the territory one a break and I'm getting the extra burden. We didn't get to spend much time on what's a better way to go, but Kurt, you do this all the time. You, you see this all the time. What, what is a more successful path toward developing goals for territory? So I don't think there is a uh, one size fits all okay, on any enough. of this, right? Fair and so enough. you have to look at every individual company, every individual situation. But the fact of the matter is doing a 6% growth rate across the board is just, it's the easy way out, right? It means that as a sales VP or sales operations group or whoever is putting that together, you're taking the easy way out um, and you're not putting in the time or the energy and the analytics into looking at what are the different opportunities that each sales territory has. Um, and it gets back into your sales philosophy. It goes into, are you paying people based on the actual volume that you're bringing in because that's the amount of, of profit that comes into the organization? Are you looking at it as an opportunity that, you know, uh, Territory A has X opportunity, Territory uh, B has Y opportunity, and you know how well the salesperson achieves to whatever that opportunity is. So the biggest thing is being able to, as accurately as possible, understand the opportunity within each of those territories. And that isn't easy. No, no. It is not an easy thing it's to do. It's not a trivial thing to assess. No. And, you know, there's bottom-up ways of looking at that. There's top-down ways of looking at that with data. There's some ways to combine those. Um, that being said, the closer that you can get to a real realistic perspective on what the opportunity is in each territory and assigning a growth goal accordingly to that, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, definitely. And those goals have to feel achievable by the rep. And I think that's part of that 6% across the board feels either really easy for some and really hard for others. And well, that doesn't yeah. make a, a good 
sales incentive plan. Well, we've even seen companies that are not considering things like seasonality. Oh, yeah. When there's obvious seasonality in, in the way the product moves through the market, uh, and when when sales managers especially are not taking that into consideration, that just gums up the works. Yeah. You know, then, then you get into this explaining and negotiating around something that could be easily um, broken apart and said, okay, let's, let's actually just, let's deal with seasonality up front and build our plan around the seasonality aspects yeah. of, of the product. And again, it's not easy, right? And the data, you got to have the right kind of data. You got to have enough of that data. You got to have the wherewithal to be able to analyze that data. Lots of those factors come into play. That being said, he talks about um, stars, cores, and laggards, yeah. which is a main piece of, of what we talked about. And so I know you have done a lot of work with looking at those core performers and putting contests in more short-term type responses as opposed to an annual incentive plan or a quarterly incentive plan. So w what did you think about that, and how have you uh, seen that applied appropriately? I, I, I loved it. I, I, I'm really glad that Mike is continuing to hammer home a message that's been going on for almost 20 years about moving the middle. Move the middle, engage the, the, the middle 60% because of, of the mass, the, the sheer volume of it, and the potential that they have to grow is so much greater than that of either the, the uh, stars or the laggards. Um, and in tests that I've done and in uh, so that some of the experimental stuff, boy, the, the middle 60% the middle responds really strongly to two things, being recognized for improving because they're so often left out. And second, they want to perform better. It's not that they want to be an average performer. Sometimes they just, they just need more training, coaching, support, communication, or the experience of actually getting up on their horse and selling a whole bunch during a, a short period of time to get the confidence to go and do more. Yeah. I think sales reps are naturally overconfident, but in this case, the, the, um, that middle group just still has so much more potential. And so some of the things we talked about, kind of that bucketing of, of different tiers within there and having you compete against like type of territories Absolutely. or other salespeople, what are some other ways that you see kind of engaging that middle? The, the best one I've seen is competing against yourself. Okay. Where it's year-over-year year growth or, uh, or period-over-period growth, and you're having to, to, uh, to establish a goal based on your expected run rate in this year-over-year year comparison. That's really the optimal. Then everybody along the entire uh, arc of the sales group has an opportunity to, to earn, including the laggards. And that stimulates confidence. Mm -hmm. That actually helps buy, helps us buy more confidence equity, if you will, that gets people going and gives them the confidence to do more the next round. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Should we talk about some music? Of, uh, I'm expecting it. <laughs> it's summer. It's summer where we are right now. And uh, I, I was thinking about summer music series and summer you know, outdoor concerts, things right. that, that we've experienced outdoors. And by the way, we are in uh, the Behavioral Groups 2 studio. Studio uh, B. Studio yeah. B. There <laughs> yes. you go. Right. And we have a beautiful view outside of yeah. Tim's house with all of his bird feeders. And we have wonderful birds showing up. Uh, and it's been a wonderful opportunity. Been, <laughs> I've lost my concentration a few times. We've, it's been kind of fun, like the Baltimore Orioles and the Cardinals and the Nuthatches. It's just been really nice today. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. very good. Anyway, okay. outdoor music. Yeah, so I was just thinking about outdoor music. So do you, uh, you've had some, you are a big live music fan, so I'm sure you've had some great outdoor concerts. What are the, what are the outdoor concert or outdoor music experiences that come to mind for you, Kurt? So there's a couple. So one of my favorites was uh, the Tragically Hip Canadian band. Yeah. Um, who by by far I think have the best name of any band ever, the <laughs> Tragically Hip, um, uh, and and they played at a, at a concert just over the river here in Hudson, Wisconsin, um, and it was how long ago was this? Uh, many many years okay. ago, okay. <laughs> many many years ago. We won't go there, um, but it was this beautiful thing. I had two tickets. I couldn't. I, the person I was going to go with didn't come. I was there by myself. It was a really weird. It was one. It's a wow. it's a festival, so there's multitude of different bands playing. M- multiple stages. Mul- there are two stages going. You know, and they they one would play and then the other would play and different things. And and but the tragically hip or performing out there. And I just remember it was that they were the headliner. It was, you know, night. It was gorgeous out. It was mm. just this fantastic thing. I was there by myself, so I didn't have to be concerned about anybody else. I was in the mosh pit. I was enjoying <laughs> uh, right up front uh, and, and seeing this. And Gordon Downey, who was the lead singer, um, it, he must have been on some sort of... of uh, medicinal uh, medication oh, of, of something but assisting he his, is assisting uh, his thing experience that night. oh my gosh he was crazy and wild and just uh, out of this world um, and I, I uh, unfortunately he passed away recently he had brain cancer and he oh. just he passed away I think within the last year wow. or two thanks um, for bringing that up <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a downer so that was one and that 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 stands out but then I have to just say um, Summerfest in Milwaukee uh, mm. along oh, the yeah. along the the Lake Michigan uh, shoreline and many 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 years have gone to to that when I was younger and uh, saw lots of bands outside everybody from um, uh, the Depeche mode not the Depeche mode Depeche mode to new order to all my 80s bands to yeah. um, who else I've seen um, uh, Dylan there um, Summerfest is just—it's amazing, and they have yeah, these. The acts are are, are tremendous. Aren't they? Acts are tremendous, even on the, like the smaller stages. There's multiple multiple stages, but they had a group called Johnny on Wash Day. I think I talked about these guys oh, before. Yeah, yeah, and they were just out in the middle of the of kind of the the grounds. They didn't have a stage for the first couple of years that they would go, and they had you know a trombonist and an upright bass player and the guy with the drums that you know he's just doing, and they're walking around the horn section and acoustic guitar and they were just fun interacting but again those outdoor kind of gathering people in so That's, yourself I've talked a lot no I well you know I, I, Summerfest is something that everybody should experience yes and you need to have the wine coolers there that okay <laughs> But get to Milwaukee and go to Summerfest. Yeah. Uh, first recommendation. So I have uh, a similar rich history with some really great outdoor concerts. But I think the one that is most memorable is one that happened just a couple of years ago. And that was with, um, with a, a British guy who uh, just happened to be coming through the States. And uh, he played at uh, Target Field okay. uh, by the name of Paul McCartney. Oh. So, <laughs> but, but, Some little, you know, yeah, no-name guy. Well, he was with a band a bunch of years ago. But uh, he's, been yeah. on, he's been playing solo for the a long time. Jitterbugs or something like that? <laughs> yeah, right. But, 
McCartney at 70 years old gave a thrilling, absolutely thrilling performance. Uh, and, you know, circumstances makes a difference, right? Beautiful night, outdoors, the stadium was new, everything was just kind of primed up. It took 45 minutes to get through the security line, oh. <laughs> uh, which was irritating. But fortunately, that happened before the first beer. And after that, you know, things just got happier. Oh, so, good. Oh, good. So, so I recommend Paul McCartney if he if he tours again. Sir Paul McCartney, right? Sir Paul McCartney. There you go. Man with a K. Man with a K. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening in. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us high on whatever pod service that you listen to us on. And make sure that you... Uh, uh, sign up and get these all the time. That would be great. Thanks. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs>